and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guests today are Rajan Menon, the Director of Grand Strategy Program at Defense Priorities, Professor Emeritus at the City College of New York, and a Senior Research Fellow at Columbia University, and Daniel DePetris. He's a Fellow at Defense Priorities and a columnist at Chicago Tribune and Newsweek. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you, John. Thank you. First, I want to ask you to give us a sense of where Russia is at in the Ukraine war. It's been widely noted that Russian military performance uh, against Ukraine has been poor, really well below what experts expected, and that this war has cost Putin and his regime mightily. And that's an important point that sometimes gets lost in the commentary, but the, the details are worth getting into. Rajan, why don't you go first? The way to look at this is to look back at the military modernization that Russia underwent after 2008. Reforms, as well as the infusion of a lot of money, and while the results were uneven in the eyes of Western experts, the general consensus was that the Russian military had become much more formidable. I remember an editorial in The Economist that said NATO should watch out because now there was a much more improved Russian military. So the failures of the military, which have been evident since the war began in February 24th, losses of equipment, losses of soldiers in combat, desertions, and above all, the failures of the logistical system that keeps the military supplied. Napoleon once said, an army marches on its stomach. In other words, if you can't supply it, you're in trouble. These have come as a big surprise. The next big surprise was the failure of the drive into Kiev, which was beaten back by Ukraine, which was then getting some Russian, uh, American, and Western weaponry, but not in large amounts as it is now. And then from September onward, over the next several months leading up to now, the Ukrainian army pushed the Russians not only out of the approaches from Kiev, but also out of Kharkiv province and began even operations into Lugansk province. So this is not what we expected to see from the Russian military. Now, I'll let Dan go, but I have some theories about why that is, and we can come back to that. Yeah, I think Rajan um, really hit the nail on the head here. The one thing I would only add is just the decision-making process within the Kremlin to the extent that we can you know, discern it from the outside. Uh, has, has been sort of incompetent would be a generous term to use. Uh, it seems like Vladimir Putin's advisors in the military or in the security establishment have been pretty hesitant to deliver him bad news on the front. It seems like the Russians have planned their entire war based on faulty assumptions and terrible poor judgment. I would imagine Putin probably uh, assumed that the Ukrainian army would fold within a matter of weeks, if not days. And that the uh, regime change operation, and let's be honest, this originally this was a regime change operation to get Zelensky's government out and replace it with a, you know, a pro-Russian administration has been just an abomination. And, you know, it's, it's really a reminder that in the general sense of the word, re regime change operations don't go very well, um, even in the best of planning. It's pretty clear that the Russians were, uh, weren't pl planning very well from the outset. Yeah. And even if we zoom out from the battlefield, there are lots of costs in the international scene to Russia. You know, the, the, there's a lot of unity against uh, this uh, aggression and it's cost Russia a lot. 
How would you guys describe U.S. interests in the war? As I look at it, it seems the stated national interests that compel U.S. involvement are a bit amorphous. There doesn't seem to be any agreement on an end state. What are we trying to get to? No unified theory of victory. Um, not even any agreement, I think, on what an achievable victory is. Uh, and that seems like a big problem. We're involved in an ongoing war, which is extremely chaotic and unpredictable, and we're using means towards ends that we haven't specified, or at least when they are specified, they seem to be highly differentiated. So what are U.S. interests in this war? Well, I suspect that had NATO gone into the mist after the end of the Cold War and the position had been taken that it had served its use and was no longer necessary, even had revived Russia attacked Ukraine as it has now, it's an open question to me whether we would be committed to the degree that we are. So I think we have to see the U.S. involvement, not in terms of whether Ukraine matters to core American national security goals, the defense of the homeland, protection of essential sea routes, and so on. And the answer, I think, is clearly it does not. But given that we are not only in NATO, but essentially underwrite the security of NATO, there was a lot of pressure uh, on the administration to make sure that this was not the first step towards something bigger. And the countries on the eastern flank, namely Poland and the Baltic states in principle, were particularly interested in a strong showing. So I would say we have to look at this in terms of the enlarging of U.S. interests by virtue of its role in NATO. And then it begins to make some sense to me. But I don't see, and this is a point that Dan and I make in the piece, that while certainly Russia is manifestly a threat to Ukraine's territorial integrity, whether it is a threat in any similar fashion to the rest of Europe, I think is a debatable proposition and one about which I'm deeply skeptical. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the Biden administration sort of walking a fine line here between assisting Ukraine's military campaign to push the Russians out of every inch of Ukrainian territory on the one hand, and on the other hand, doing its best to minimize um, you know, escalation from the Russians and to make sure that the war doesn't broaden outside Ukrainian borders. So if you think about it, it's sort of a, a kind of like a paradoxical situation. You know, those two, those two goals especially if you get towards a situation where the Ukrainians are militarily capable of, you know, taking Crimea, for instance, or maybe territory that the Russians have occupied in eastern Ukraine over the last eight years, since 2014. Those two, those two goals kind of clash, if you think about it. Um, right now, the administration has done a very, very good job at threading the needle between escalation and assisting the Ukrainians militarily. But I question whether the administration can keep that up if the Ukrainians are in a position of actually expelling the Russians off of off of Ukrainian territory. So it's an interesting question, and it's potentially a, you know a dangerous and explosive one too. There's a recent Defense Priorities Symposium on the war in Ukraine to which you both contributed. Um, Jason Castillo's contribution makes a point that he made um, on an earlier episode of this show that the risk of nuclear escalation makes the pursuit of a diplomatic solution to end the war imperative. And at the same time, Mike Desch wrote that, quote, the only possible basis 
for a negotiated solution to the conflict is Ukrainian territorial concessions. Do you guys agree with that? Should the U.S. be trying to shoot for a diplomatic solution? And if so, what do you think the basic parameters of a plausible deal are? Well, the reasons that you mentioned, John, namely the fear of escalation, in two ways. One is vertical. That is, Russia uses nuclear weapons and then we're off to a destination that is uncharted and unknown and could spiral into a nuclear clash between the superpowers. We've never been in that territory. And another territory that we've not been in is the spillage of the conflict into NATO territory itself, which would, of course, invoke Article 5. But for all the ambiguities of Article 5, people often think it's a automatic switch, and it's not. But there's no question that that would make for a much wider conflict. People have called for a negotiated settlement, most recently Ross Douthat in the New York Times. The problem with wanting a settlement, of course, everybody wants the war to end. If you go to Ukraine, as I have twice now, and you see the destruction, nobody could come back and say, I wish the war would continue. People want it to end. But at this point, neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians, for wholly different reasons, believe that they are losing the war. And neither believes that continuing the war will leave them in a worse place. Now, we could say, that's foolish. Why do they think that? But what the three of us think here is irrelevant. It's what they think. That's number one. The second is that this, from the Russian standpoint, is Vladimir Putin's war. He cannot, without severe damage to his position, and maybe the threat to it altogether, walk away without something that he can parade as victory. And I would define that something as the annexation of Donbass, which is Lugansk and Donetsk province, a good part of the southeast, maintaining the land bridge to Crimea and keeping as much of Ukraine's Black Sea territory as possible. Now, that is equivalent to the partition of Ukraine. And no one that I've ever met in Ukraine has said that that would be an acceptable settlement. And as long as the United States, in particular, we've provided something like $28 billion in arms, is supporting them, they have no reason to, to concede. So that's the reality of the matter. On escalation, very quickly, it's very difficult to game out because if we were trying to figure out what the escalation risks are among the three of us, we do roughly the following, right? We'd say, let me think of myself in Vladimir Putin's shoes. And what would I do if the West did this? and that, or Ukraine did this and that, or the West and Ukraine together did this and that. The difficulty is that the three of us might come to very different assessments of what the risk probabilities are, and none of us would be able to convince the other because the evidence that we would need about what Putin is thinking, what he's telling his closest associates, if he's telling them, is not absent. So the escalation debate goes on interminably, and so there's always a room for disagreement. And as Dan said, therefore, we get to the point where the administration so far thinks it can thread the needle. Now, that makes people nervous, but that's kind of where we are. So I'm not hopeful that the fear of escalation itself, as far as I can see, as far as I can see, will lead to some settlement because of the other reasons I, I mentioned. As much as I would love, personally, a, a diplomatic settlement to end the war, and to you know, stop this atrocious, the worst war you've ever seen since you know World War II, and it's it's been absolutely horrendous in terms of all the humanitarian indicators. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian civilians dead, 
You have, I think, over 14 million people have left their homes in less than a year. I mean, this is a gigantic humanitarian emergency. So, you know, Raj and I are are extremely supportive of getting this war done and over with as soon as possibly can, as is everybody and I've I've spoken to personally. You know, but we, we have to look at the dynamics here and the psychology of the combatants. And I think I think Raj kind of hit the hit the again hit the nail on the head because right now the Russians and the Ukrainians are in no position whatsoever to negotiate anything. The one thing they negotiate right now is prisoner exchanges, and maybe you know we had the the breakthrough on the uh, the wheat and the grain moving out of Ukrainian ports over the summer, courtesy of the United Nations, which was a, actually a very very significant agreement. But in terms of actually stopping the fighting. There's no indication that I can see that either side is willing to even sit down at the table, let alone begin a you know substantive discussion about how to end this. And part of this is because for the Ukrainians, this is an existential war in every meaning of the term. Putin has been pretty clear in his public statements that Ukraine is an artificial country, an artificial construct that was pretty much established by Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> you know, I mean, this this is sort of. Ukraine is not an independent sovereign state in Putin's mind. And, you know, Zelensky and his administration and even Zelensky's opponents in the Ukrainian political system, if they're united on one thing, it's expelling all the Russians out of every single inch of Ukrainian territory. And unless that changes, we're not going to get any settlement talks whatsoever. So as much as I appreciate that discussion, it's it's sort of kind of, you know, irrelevant at the stage of the it's at the stage of the fight. The one move the United States could take to possibly push the Ukrainians to the table is to cut off military assistance and economic assistance. But there's nobody in this in this room here that thinks that's a remotely plausible idea, especially at the the current political uh, atmosphere in DC right now. So, I'm, uh, unfortunately, we're 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 in a situation where this war could go on for quite a long time, months, certainly years, possibly. It's 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 an unfortunate situation, but that's where we are. To add to what Dan has said, with which I agree, Putin has made the settlement now much more difficult. I mean, if we arrive at a, if we assume a settlement, each gives something, and maybe one side gives a little more, depending on the condition of the battlefield. Recall that Putin, in was it July? I can't quite remember. Had a referendum in four provinces: uh, Donetsk, Lugansk, Zaporozhye, and Kherson, and he said. There's been an overwhelming decision by these people that they want to join Russia, surprise, surprise, and that they are now constitutionally part of the Russian Federation. Now, think about this. If he were to make territorial concessions, he would no longer just be giving up territory that Russia occupies in a foreign country, in Ukraine. He would be giving up what, by his own definition, is Russian territory. He's got the Russian Orthodox Church behind this, he has presented this and as, a, as an existential threat. And so he has put himself in a position where short of outright defeat, his room for maneuver is very, very limited. Now, the idea that Ukraine should concede to these territorial losses, that is these four provinces, is a non-starter in Ukraine. Because of the partition problem that I mentioned. And so that's where we are. The interesting thing to see will be, and I don't expect this to happen. I'm in the camp that doesn't think this will happen. Let's assume there's a big Russian mobilization and another one and a big 
Russian advance and Ukraine is in great difficulty. At that point, I think for all the talk in the West about how we'll stand by Ukraine till the very end, there will be pressure to settle. But I don't see that happening. And so I come back to the view that I hear expressed in Ukraine over and over again. We could be in this for two more years, and we have no choice because for the Russians, the loss of the war doesn't mean the loss of their country. For us, it does. With respect to the prospect of a, of a prolonged, dragged-out conflict, there was a New York Times op-ed recently by Christopher Caldwell that basically said, look, the war is now one of attrition. Each side is kind of stuck in their trenches, sometimes literally in, in some cases, and that this kind of conflict is really a test to see which side can outlast the other. And Caldwell says, despite how costly this has been for Moscow, Russia has the advantage in the waiting game. And so he says both sides have an incentive to talk and that the, the U.S. should therefore push that. Do you guys not buy that logic of the dynamics and how uh, pushing uh, negotiations down the line might advantage Russia? So I saw that piece and I, I, I don't agree with it. I mean, I think one of the points that Caldwell makes, and correct me if I'm wrong, either of you or both of you, is that there would be a settlement, but the West is not exerting enough pressure. Now, that presumes that there is a significant number of people in the Western camp, that is, a sufficient number of countries, including the US, that really is of a mind somehow to press Ukraine. And there isn't for the reason that so far the Ukrainians have done much better than expected. And so the belief is that they'll continue to do so. Now, on Caldwell's point about the numbers will win in the end, because that's essentially what he's saying, it's quite possible that you could have a much larger Russian army. So in September, Putin had a call-up of 300,000. My understanding is about 150,000 of those have been sent to the field, pretty hastily trained. But they are losing significant numbers of people. Ukraine is losing too, but the Russians are losing significant number of people. So what the net addition is remains an open question. Then on top of that, a bigger force is a better force only if there's better generalship, better training, and better supply. So I think the jury is out so far on whether bigger is better. And let me add that this puts a burden on Ukraine because in order to sustain Western support, it has to not every week, but every few months, demonstrate that it can in fact prevail. So there's pressure on Ukraine as well, no question. But I would hesitate to say at this point that the war is a battle of attrition because you know we're only about two months into the attrition phase of this, and this could change fairly quickly. And it's certainly not been a war of attrition anywhere like World War I, right? It's a two or three month war of attrition is not really a war of attrition that brings a country to its knees, neither countries in that position. Personally, I've gotten to the point where I am not going to predict one way or the other how this war is going to turn out because we've had about 10, 15 predictions over the last 12 months and about 95% of them have been wrong. I personally, you know, full of honesty, I was one of those people who thought the Ukrainian army didn't have a chance in the beginning. And, um, you know, I, I some military analysts in D.C., and in fact, the Central Intelligence Agency and the U.S. intelligence community writ large felt the same 
felt the same way. I, I remember a, I think it was a piece in the Washington Post before the war began that said, uh, you know, the Ukrainians would basically fold within days. And clearly that hasn't been the case. And Ukrainian defenses have been formidable. They've been innovative on the battlefield. The leadership has been tremendous, especially when you consider the Russian military leadership, which has been horrendous, charitably putting it. So I, I'm one of those people that will, you know, monitor the ground every day where the front lines are. I'm not going to make any predictions, uh, but the attrition's, you know, if this does turn into a war attrition, I, I do believe the Ukrainians are, you know, it's a troubling situation for the Ukrainians. Russians have a lot of armor. They have a lot of equipment in general. They have a lot of munitions. They're expending a lot of munitions, of course, but uh, in terms of a side-by-side -side comparison, the Russian military has a lot more stuff. Let's put it that way. A lot more stuff than the Ukrainians do. And the Ukrainians are totally at the mercy, maybe not totally, that's strong, maybe that's a strong enough, uh, too strong, mainly at the mercy of Western assistance. So if Western assistance is not sustained, uh, they, they could see themselves losing ground in the East, at which point, you know, the Russians may decide to even press further than they originally decided to in, over the summer when they were trying to consolidate their positions in the Donbass. So we'll see. I mean, it, whenever whenever I get asked this question, I just say we'll see because <laughs> predictions are, as we as we as we've seen, the predictions have been all over the place, and most of them have been wrong. Another point from that symposium that's worth voicing here is Stephen Wertheim's argument that one risk of our Ukraine policy is that we further cement the idea that the United States will come to the rescue and be the security provider of first resort and potential future conflicts to come outside of Ukraine, possibly outside of Europe. Uh, do you guys see a, a risk there? I mean, I generally agree with what Stephen says, but I don't think, think the Ukraine war per se has added anything to that general sense that's prevalent in the United States, that it must be the guarantor not only of European security, but of keeping the sea lanes open the guarantor of security to the other two major centers of capitalist power in the world, namely Japan and South Korea. So I don't know that the Ukraine war ramps that up. Let's assume that the Ukraine war is concluded. I think the default position will be that the United States wants to maintain a kind of Pax Americana. It doesn't control everything everywhere, but it does so much more than any other country. So the residual value of the Ukraine war in, in hyping up Pax Americana and taking it to some other level, I think, um, I question. I, I should also say one thing. I think Dan makes a very good point about prediction, right? So I want to be clear that I'm not predicting who will win the war. I'm saying simply this, that we have now had a chance to observe two things, the mistakes of the Russian military its generalship and its logistics and its loss of territory. And we've been able to observe the tenacity of the Ukrainians, the asymmetry and morale. So the question is, will the added numbers make a difference? If they do, the war goes one way. If they don't, the war goes another way. I'm skeptical that the bigger numbers will translate into military power. That's different from being a prediction. I think for many in Europe, uh, you know, the, the war in Ukraine has sort of reinforced the belief that, that they've had for decades since World War II, that the U.S. is the predominant power and that they need U.S. power and U.S. forward deployments to safeguard European security. 
we may argue, as Raj and I do in the piece, that that is completely wrong and that the conclusion is actually the opposite. But in, within many European capitals, that that is the, the predominant uh, conclusion of the war. Is and in some ways, you know, it, it took a war. It took a, the, Europe's largest war in eighty years for European defense budgets to start gradually going up. Germany, you know, as as we all know, Germany has pledged, you know, an additional one hundred billion dollars to their much depleted military. Where where that is, the status of that, the implementation has been uh, spotty to say the least. But it, it it tells you a lot that it took an incredibly violent event in international relations for Europe to actually wake up and uh, get its own house in order in terms of their military industrial complex and, and their defense budgets. So, John, this is what troubles me, by the way. So, um, on Wertheim's point, let's assume that he's 100% right. But that doesn't answer the question, what do we do now? Do we cut off arms to Ukraine? To, to say that this is going to lead to a result that won't be a good one from his perspective avoids the question about what should we do then? And nobody really has a good answer for that because if you say, well, we should coerce Ukraine to negotiating, that's not that's not going to happen. Uh, just to come back to the point that, that Dan made, I think the unfortunate conclusion drawn from this war is that Russia doesn't threaten just Ukraine, it threatens all of Europe. This is, a, this is an army that's bogged down in the Donbass, two provinces of Ukraine, and it's going to make fight its way to Poland, let alone to, to Germany. And then, of course, there are the economic numbers, right? So let's look at current dollars and let's use the EU roughly as a proxy for European NATO. 7.2 trillion is the GDP of the EU. Russia's is 1.8 trillion. Now, friends of mine like Mike Kaufman say, no, no, you can't use current GDP. You've got to use PPP, purchasing power parity. What can each currency buy on its home market? So Russia's in PPP is 5.4 and Germany's alone is 4.9. So for and if you look at patents, for example, as a proxy for technological advancement, right? So the EU's patent numbers are something like uh, 108,000, 109,000 close to last year. Russia's is 23,000. So whatever reason there is for Europe's unwillingness to marshal an autonomous defense, whether in NATO or outside of NATO, I think it's impossible to make the argument that what's stopping them is the lack of means. Just to jump on that point, I mean, the balance of power right now is pretty heavily in Europe's favor in terms of you know all the economic, military, and demographic indicators that Raja mentioned. I'll only I'll only point out that it's even more favorable favorable to the Europeans now than it was a year ago. The Russians are losing two hundred thousand men. A lot of those men are of working age, which you know, in peacetime, they would be productive members of society contributing to the economy. The sanctions, the Western-led sanctions, have been cutting off high technology exports to the Russian market, which will in turn lower Russia's uh, already abysmal rankings in terms of technology. So, you know, if if anything, this war has has gotten uh, to the point where the Russians are even a weaker military power uh, today than they were twelve months ago, courtesy of the Ukrainians and courtesy of Western military support. 
So Dan brings up a, a good point, and the thesis of uh, a piece in foreign policy that you guys co-authored and that we've referenced several times without me introducing it, but leading up to the war in Ukraine, there had been a long debate about burden sharing, about whether it was time for the U.S. to back away from its traditional post-war role of being Europe's protector. And one of the arguments against that has been Russia and its malign intentions, particularly in Eastern Europe. And now those people see Russia's invasion and war in Ukraine and, and, and see their views confirmed, You know, see Russia as a major threat and Europe needs American military management. Others, and your piece in foreign policy is a good example of this, they say Russia's poor performance is, is actually confirmation of the restraint view that we needn't protect Europe. Explain why you think the Ukraine war proves the point that the United States can phase out of its post-war role in Europe. You know, as much as Dan and I would like to see a change, I wouldn't put a lot of money on it. And for two reasons, one of which we've mentioned, but I, I'll just flag it again. That is the conclusion that's been drawn from the war. It's not that Russia is not a threat. It's that Russia is even a bigger threat than we thought. And the Ukrainians themselves have have added to this narrative by saying, we're not just defending our country, we're defending all of European civilization and so on. Now, take that even as maybe wartime rhetoric, but I think there's a belief in this. And if you Look at people like um, Mike McFall or Ann Applebaum or Tim Snyder. There are prominent voices that buy into this. But there's another problem. The expansion of NATO post-Cold War has shifted the gravity away from the Macrons of this world who didn't have much traction to begin with. And this ambivalence about NATO goes back to, to, to Gaul at least, right? Toward the Poles, the Balts, the Romanians and others who absolutely want an American-led NATO reinforced by a substantial American presence, as do the Brits. So the deck is stacked, as it were, against Macron. And as we say in the piece, we ourselves, while we want the Europeans to do more, want to be the security provider of Europe, because that, in a sense, is part of what makes for Pax Americana. So there's a weird kind of what psychologists would call kind of codependence at work here. And I don't think it'll be untangled by any therapist anytime soon. I, I use the uh, the analogy where, you know, the United States is like the parent who scolds the child for not eating his carrots, but then leaves cookies on the table. You know, that's essentially what we're doing with the Europeans is we, we complain. And John, you hit, hit on this immediately. And it's a good point. And it has to be reiterated. We complain constantly, incessantly. Ever since Eisenhower, maybe even before Eisenhower, that the Europeans spend too little on defense, they don't take it seriously, they feel entitled to a U.S. security umbrella, and that's all fine and good. You know, true. I, I, I remember Trump giving a million speeches and comments about how the Europeans are European defense budgets are paltry and that they need to step up and, and do more in their neighborhood. But at the same time, we want all that, all those contributions, to remain under the NATO umbrella. And what is NATO in, in the base fact of it is NATO is the United States military. You take the United States military out of NATO, and I think it's safe to say that NATO would be maybe not a paper tiger, but a far less formidable military defensive alliance than it would be if the United States continued to be uh, the backbone of, of the alliance. So it's, it's sort of a strange situation where we're complaining on the one hand, then on the other hand, we complain also if the Europeans even make one move towards uh, strategic autonomy in the defense realm. So we are the chief enablers, I think, in this situation. So is Europe ready 
I mean, this might require some speculation on your part, but how ready is Europe for America to extricate itself in the politically implausible <laughs> scenario that that happens sometime soon? Uh, would there need to be a phase-out period uh, as they pr procure new weapon systems and become more independent? You know, I, I don't think, I won't speak for Dan, but I, I think the logic of our piece is not to suggest that tomorrow suddenly this happened. We recognize the obstacles and there would be a path that would be responsible and give people preparation, not just by the way to boost defense budgets, but to have a kind of common strategy for what it means to defend Europe, to stop the duplication of weapon systems, to have much more combined investment in defense industries. And that will take time. But unless there is a process that's begun, it will never happen. So are, you said, are they ready? I would say in terms of material capacity, long since the, 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 the pieces are in place. Psychologically and politically, not at all, for reasons that we suggested. And you know, even though this has become kind of a hobby horse for Dan and me, and I think it's one of the themes of defense priorities and maybe of, of Cato, uh, I'm I'm not I'm a realist. I I don't see this happening. But I think unless the narrative in the United States changes on this, it will never happen. And narratives change sometimes with lonely voices. And over time, because conditions change, uh, they change. It's interesting that Trump's rather crude argument that the Allies were fleecing us. If you go outside the Beltway or certainly the Washington-Boston corridor and talk to people in Oklahoma or Houston, two places I was last year, the idea that we should do less and others should do more intuitively sells, right? But the foreign policy establishment, broadly written, and it's both Democratic and Republican, universities, think tanks, Congress, I mean, the whole shebang, defense industry, they're the ones ultimately who really matter. and they're. It's it's heresy to suggest that there should be such a change. It would be considered what Dan and I are suggesting would be considered completely irresponsible. How could you say this, especially at a time like this? Would be more or less the response. Dan, how could you say this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I mean, NATO is is a sacred cow in DC, right? I mean, it, it's one of those agenda items similar to denuclearization of North Korea, or uh, you know the removal of Bashar al-Assad from Syria. It, it's one of those very sacred cows that even if you challenge, on the, even on the fringes, challenge the, the concept, the operable concept that, is, that has existed in foreign policy circles for the last, you know, ever since NATO was established in, the, in 1949, you're sort of branded as irresponsible or, you know, a pro-Russian, you know, bot or uh, doing the bidding of, of the Kremlin. And all, all Raj and I are saying is that we need to be, begin the discussion. It's, it will take a long time, it's, but it's not, a, it's not a matter of material or wealth. The Europeans have material. They have the wealth. The EU economy as a whole is, is about the same size as the American economy. So they have, the, they have the prerequisites to do this. It's just a matter of political will. And I don't know how you fast track that, you know, it's hard to measure political will as a political scientist, you know, how, how do you, how do you do that? But, you know, the, the trick here is just to begin this, begin the discussion. It might, it may take a decade, it may take longer, but right now, uh, you know, the status quo in, in my humble opinion is, is not, is not fair to the United States. And 
quite frankly, it doesn't do the Europeans any favors either. I will also add just this, John. Let's speculate wildly for a moment. The one event that I could see as calling into question the continued relevance of NATO would be as a result of this war, the complete disintegration of the Russian Federation. I think that is not likely to happen. And unlike people who want it to happen, I don't, because there's an assumption that if it happens, what awaits us is either some form of stability that's authoritarian but much more benign, or democracy. And people seem to forget the other alternatives, prolonged bloodshed and chaos in a vast nuclear armed country. But short of that, as long as Russia is there in some form, simply by virtue of how large it is, right, and the legacy of the Cold War and what it's given in Ukraine now, I think that the argument of people like Dan and myself has become even less plausible as something that would be embraced by the powers that be. And we are not the powers that be, we're the powers that not be. Boy, do I love ending the show on a note of discouragement. <laughs> uh, Rajan Menon, Daniel DePetris, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Don. Pleasure. Thank you, John. <laughs>